0: Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. the prophet spoke to the Lord and said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. We attempted to point this out as almost a reduction of what scripture has to say about man. That is, that the key to your life and the key to mine, the way of your life and the way of mine, Is not in you, nor is it in me. But the way of a man is on the outside, and the key to life for him is something he must seek. He does not have it inherently and intrinsically. Biblically, this is very correct, because if there is anything that the Scripture tries to make clear to us, it is that we are not self-contained or independent units. That there is something about us that we cannot live alone. Our resources within are not enough. And we cannot live independently of others. This really is what it means to be a creature rather than to be God. That basically is the difference between God and between you and me. God is the one who is self-contained and needs nothing added to himself. In order for him to live and know meaning and truth. He is the one who is dependent upon no one. He needs nothing beyond himself. We are the ones who are totally unable to exist on the basis of our own resources. We are not self contained and we are not independent. You see that in uh, a man's life. When he is born, he is born independent. And as he nurses at his mother's breast, you know, though he may not yet know it, that separation from that mother or separation from that kind of resource would mean inevitably death. There is no independence in us. And when we come to the end of our days, the average person who lives a normal life when he gets to the end of his days finds himself again as dependent as he was in those first days of his life. It is the nature of the creature that he is dependent, and his life finds its meaning only in someone or something outside himself. Now, of course, you know what the prophet was speaking about and what he was trying to say to us, that the key to our life is found in God. And that we will never know life in contrast to living death unless we know God. And we will never know what life is meant to be. We will never know full meaning in life. Rather than emptiness or futility or vanity unless we find our way to God. And that's the great tragedy of living a life without ever coming to know God. Because having lived it out and having tried all the alternate options, when a man comes to the end of his days, If he has never known God, one does not need to tell him that he has missed what life is all about. He knows it, and he knows it in the depths of his being. And there is that cry, was all of this for all of that simply for this? Did I really miss it? And, of course, if he has missed God, he has. Now, what about the nature of the key to life for you and for me? One of the evidences of the love of God and of his goodness to us is that no man needs to be ignorant. There are 4,000 years of sacred history at least to give us guidance. And 66 books of holy scripture and one holy life lived, sacrificed, and resurrected so that you and I can know the way of life. Because it is in Christ that we find the key to your existence and to mine. You will remember that in the book of the Revelation, in that opening vision of Jesus that John saw there, you will remember he, as he saw Christ exalted, he heard him speak, and as he spoke, he heard these words, I, Christ speaking, am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. He is the one in whom the keys are found. The keys of hell and the keys of death. You turn to the third chapter and you will find in the letter to the Philadelphian church. Christ again speaking. These things saith he that is holy. Christ the holy one. He that is true. Christ the truth. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. He is the one in whom the key to your life and mine is found. He holds the key. There is something ultimate about Jesus, and this is the thing that is disconcerting to the non christian because the scripture bears witness and the Christian church, all believers bear witness that there is something about Jesus that is ultimate, that he is really the last word in every man's life. That word ultimate is an interesting word. I remember when I was in teaching or studying studying Hebrew and related languages, I found myself learning about the uh, syllables and they talked about the ultima and the antipenal. they had a whole set of words to describe the syllables in a word and so you had the last syllable in any word was the syllable that was called the ultima well, it's interesting that's the way we feel about christ and that's the way the scripture bears witness about him that he is really the last word in every person's life, and it really doesn't matter whether that person is a Christian or not. Now, there are many people who are willing to say, it's perfectly all right for Jesus to be the last word in your life, but he certainly is not going to be the last word in my life. I have other plans for my life. Well, let me tell that person, whoever he is, He may have other plans for his life, but when he comes to that last syllable, it's going to be Jesus of Nazareth. When he comes to that end of end, he's going to find that what was said about Jesus is as true of the unsaved and the unregenerate as it is of those who have been born of the Spirit of God. He is the first and he is the last. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. He is the beginning and he is the ending and that is true for every person that has ever lived or ever will live. This is found in that title which is given in that verse which we read or in that chapter from which we read a few moments ago in the book of the Revelation. In that closing letter of those seven letters to the seven churches, you will remember that John writes to the church at Laodicea. God speaks, Christ speaks, and says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And anything that is a part of this creation had its beginning in him. But now notice the title that is given to him. These things saith the Amen. Now, that word speaks to me because that was my first favorite religious word. I remember when I went to church as a young person, before I became a Christian, that was the word I always waited for. And I've always felt that that's one of the reasons I've never been musically inclined because the choir cheated on me on occasion. And when it went into its multiple amens, it confused me because I learned what amen meant. It meant, boys, it's over with, you can go home now. This is the end, and that's what it says that Jesus is. That Jesus Christ is the end of every person's existence. No matter what road he takes when he comes to the end of it,
1: there will
0: stand Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Mary, Son of God, the Holy One, and it is with him whom every person will have to do. Now, this key that is in him, what is the nature of it? Obviously, it is an ultimate key. And it is the key to every man's life, without exception, for all the options. And when it is over, you will find that they have not worked. The key is in him. And it is not only ultimate, it is holy. That is the nature of it. And perhaps that is the most significant thing that can be said. The key to life is a holy one. Moral, yes. Ethical, yes. Right and righteous, yes true and true, good and goodness, all of these are here. You will remember that in that opening chapter of Mark, when Jesus was speaking in the synagogue at Capernaum, there was a man there possessed with a demon, and as Jesus preached, the one with the demon within him became greatly disturbed, and he turned and said, I know thee, O thou holy one of God. The devils knew who he was and knew who how to name him, and they said, called him the Holy One of God. And that character of Christ as holiness affects everything in the Christian religion. This is the reason that we can say very safely that the ultimate word in human history will be holiness unto the Lord. And by Lord, we mean Jesus and his Father. This is the reason that the writer to the book of Hebrews could say, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Strong language, excluding language, but biblical language. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's the reason that wherever you turn in Scripture, you have to come to grips with something that is not popular in our day. And really, it is not popular in any day since the fall of Adam and will not be popular until Christ comes again. And that word is law. We are a people who do not want law. We feel that it's extrinsic to us and it hampers and hinders us. But the fact is that wherever you meet God in Scripture, you will find that somewhere, if not in the center of the stage with him, lurking in the shadows will be the law of God with all of its obligations and with all of its bindingness. Everywhere you meet him, you will find him. Now, it is possible for men to have the law without God, but there is not a line in all of Scripture to indicate that any man can ever have God without law. These two things go together because basically law, the law of God, Not man's law, not the church's law, but the law of God. This is the expression of his own nature. And where you get him, you will find that that is present. You remember that this was true in that opening scene in Scripture there in the Garden of Eden. Man walked and communed with God directly. But there, as a third party to that fellowship, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And ringing in the ears of those first two creatures was the clear command of God, Thou shalt not eat of the fruit thereof. Man without sin lived in the presence of God, but not without law. Man without sin lived in the presence of God and his word. And when man, when we meet him in that ultimate day, the law of God will not be a problem because it will be fulfilled but it will be the order of that kingdom to which we go. You remember that when God brought his people out of Egyptian bondage and delivered them in that mighty succession of miracles culminating in the deliverance through the Red Sea and then as he nurtured them on manna and on quail and with water from the rock, you remember that he brought them to Sinai and there he said, let's have a marriage, a wedding. And the Lord Jehovah took to himself a bride. And when he took to himself that bride, he said, Now let me tell you what the conditions of the covenant, this marriage covenant, what these conditions are. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. You're not, We are not supposed to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. We are to keep the seventh day, the Sabbath day, holy unto him. We are to honor our fathers and our mothers. We are not supposed to steal or to commit kill or to commit adultery or to covet. You know the Ten Commandments. But there they are, given by God, given to the people that belong to him. And he said, if you are going to be my people and if I'm going to be your God, this must be your way of life because this is my desire and this is my will and when he built they had them build the tabernacle so that he could dwell in their midst you will remember that the central object in that tabernacle was the ark of the covenant and he said here over this ark between the cherubim i will meet with you god with his people and underneath that golden lid that was over that ark in that box which was the central object of israel's worship the central object in their in their center of worship You will remember that in that box were the two tables of the law. And the ark was called, that box, the central religious object, that box was called the ark of testimony. It was the testimony that they had said, We will live in your ways and according to your commandments. And God had said, If you live in these ways, I will be your God and you will be my people. There's no way you can overemphasize that in talking about the Old Testament. You will remember that when they came to the end of their journeyings, before they entered the land of Canaan, one generation had died in the wilderness and a new generation had arisen. And Moses took them there in the plains and began to give to them the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy simply meaning the second giving of the law. And there in that book he repeated again for them, not only verbally, but writing it down so that every Jew could, could turn and read it. There the law was written, and God spoke and said, this is the characteristic of my people, this is the way they are to live. I was looking today at that passage in Second Chronicles 7.14, which has been used so widely in this bicentennial year. You will remember that the context was when Israel built not a tabernacle, but a temple. The kingdom had been established under David and then brought to Jerusalem and then under his son Solomon. And Solomon had a house built for him, but there was no house for God, permanent house. And so Solomon built the temple. And when the temple was filled, God was built and finished. And God came, God came to Solomon. And he said, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, Then he said, I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. And what are our wicked ways? Those ways that are not consonant with his law, his word. You will remember if you know that passage, if you will look at the end of that passage, he says, if you do not walk in these ways, then this city will be destroyed, this house will be destroyed, and the nations of the earth will walk past and say, what happened to these people? and that the word will be given to the nations of the world, that these people forsook their God, and their God forsook them. What did it mean to forsake God? It meant to forsake his holy word. Now, many people say, that's Old Testament. That doesn't have anything to do with Christians. Of course, it has something to do with Christians. Jesus, the scripture to Jesus was the Old Testament. The only Bible that Paul had was the Old Testament. And it was that with which he went around the Mediterranean basin preaching it as he found it fulfilled in Christ. And it is still the Word of God. So, of course, we live under a new covenant that is still indicative of the nature and the character of God. If you turn to the New Testament, you will find the New Testament is supportive of this. When Jesus in the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew hardly has started the birth of Jesus. The ministry of John the Baptist, chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry and goes through the countryside calling some disciples, picking up John the Baptist's ministry of repentance and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in chapter 5, he takes a group of people up onto a mountainside and he says, I came not to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. Came not to put it aside, but in order that it might be fulfilled within you. He said, Moses said to you, you're not supposed to commit adultery. I say to you that if you look on a woman to lust after her, in your heart you have already committed it. Better to have your eye pulled out and enter into heaven with one eye than to enter into hell with two eyes. If you are going to live in violation of God's law, then you will be separated from him. Or take that word, Moses said, thou shall not kill. Jesus said, I did not come to Revoke that, or to annul it. Let me tell you, that is not only true, but I want you to know that if you are angry with your brother, you will be in danger of the judgment. If you call him stupid or empty head, or if you call him raka, you will be in danger of the council, and if you call him a fool, you will be in danger of hellfire. Now, it doesn't appear that Jesus is annulling it or removing it, does it? You will remember that he said... You are supposed to love your neighbors. And you are supposed to, the, the The law said that. Leviticus 19 told them to love their neighbors. But Jesus said, let me tell you, I want you not only to love your neighbors, but I want you to love your enemies. You extend your definition of a neighbor to where it includes those that hate you so that you can bless those that curse you and do good to those that despitefully use and persecute you. You do not find Jesus annulling the law of God. It's very evident, too, if you will go through the Gospels and the interviews of Jesus, where he dealt with men face to face in private conversation. A young man came to Jesus and looked at him and said, Good Master, what must I do that I might inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, If thou wouldst enter into life, do you notice the wording? If you don't do this, you will miss life. If thou wouldst enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he gave to him half the tables of the law and summed up that by saying, Love your neighbor as yourself. You will remember, there it is very clearly given. If thou wouldst enter into life, you will remember that it's given more indirectly perhaps, but nevertheless present in other, in other interviews. The woman at the well, where he looked at her and said, Give me to drink. And she said, This is strange you would ask me for water. You a Jew, I a Samaritan. You a man, I a woman. And he said, If you you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water so that you don't thirst again. And she said, How do I get living water to satisfy the hunger of my soul? And he said, Go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. That's right. You had five. You are living outside of the law of God. If you want to know that living water that satisfies the deep hungerings of the human heart, you've got to get your life right with God and with His way. You remember the story of Zacchaeus? Climbed in the tree, too short to see him for the crowd, and Jesus looked up lovingly and said, "Uh, Come on down, Zacchaeus, I'm going home with you today. What a shock that must have been. I imagine he almost fell out of that tree. But then when he got home, he found that Jesus was all that he had ever anticipated. But do you notice the result? He said, Master, if I've stolen anything from any man, I'm going to give it back fourfold. Now, I don't presume he would be talking that way if he hadn't done some stealing. And I'm assuming that really what he was saying was in a sort of a nice way. Lord, where I have stolen from men, I'm going to restore fourfold. But you see what was uppermost in his mind. And let me remind you that in the Old Testament, if you stole the normal return, you had repaired the relationship if you gave back twofold. But Zacchaeus says, I will give fourfold. And then, beyond that, the half of my goods I give to the poor. You see, he knew that if he was to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, he had to be morally, ethically right, because it's the kingdom of truth and of righteousness. Now, it's not only in the Gospels. Do you know that word in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians? Where Jesus speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, listen, He speaks first about the works of the flesh. And He says, verse 19 of chapter 5 of Galatians, they are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, and such like. And if you look at those, you will find that basically these are the things toward which the law of God directs itself. Now notice the climactic word in this passage on that. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that if we are a party to these things that we will be second-class citizens in the kingdom. It says that we will not be there. Now, evidently, John wanted to communicate the same message, or Jesus through John, because you will remember when we come to the close of the book of the Revelation. We are told in chapter 21 in verse 8 that the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars are not to have their part in the kingdom of God, but they're to have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. And then the final word in chapter 22, verse 15, for on the outside are dogs perhaps homosexuals, sorcerers, whoremongers, those that are sexually loose, murderers, those who take human life lightly, idolaters, those who live the creature's life without the creator. And whosoever loveth and maketh alive, those are on the outside. As the word says in verse 11, in that day he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. But he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. An ultimate division. And it is in terms of moral and ethical matters. So I think it's fair to say that the word is very clear. That the key is an ethical moral when it has to do with the, with, with the holy. And if we are to know it, there has to come a rightness to our lives. In other words, that key can't enter a crooked channel. And there's got to be some straightening before it can. That's the reason that every Christian life begins with repentance. Though we may not preach it a great deal, it's a very biblical message, isn't it? You will remember that John the Baptist, the one who came before Jesus, came preaching saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Because it is a straight way on which he comes. Where my life is crooked, there must be some straightening. That's the reason that every Christian life begins with repentance. Jesus understood that. You will remember that when he came preaching, look at chapter 4 of of Matthew. He picked up the same text of John the Baptist. John the Baptist may represent the old covenant, but certainly Jesus introduces us to the new. And what is it that he preaches? He steals John's text, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you are to be a part of it, repentance is, is, is necessary for you to enter, it or for it. To enter you. Now that's the beginning of every Christian life. There are no exceptions. You will remember that Peter. When he stood on the day of Pentecost to preach. Stood in repent And cried out repent. And he said if you will repent. Then God will give his spirit to you. But that was the word. Which Peter picked up in continued, And it is an appropriate word today. Because all that it means is that where our lives have been crooked, we should do what we can do to get them straight. Because if he is to reign in us, it it has to be a life that is straight and upright. And who is there that is not in need at that point? The best of us. they are no exception. Paul clears that very carefully in Romans 1, 2, and 3 where he concludes toward the end of that third chapter so clearly, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There was a pastor in the Wilmore Methodist Church when I was a student here who used to preach on these lines. And he'd say, Anybody here never told a lie? Would you stand up? And then he'd sit down. Then when nobody stood up, he'd say, See, a liar preaching the liars." Then he'd say, Is anybody here that never stole anything? You stand up then he'd sit down Then he'd say, preach, say, see, a thief preaching to thee. You say, well, I never stole too much. Did you ever use the Lord's day for something other than what it was intended for? There's a passage in the Old Testament that says, yes, you've stolen. You've stolen the tithes that belong to me. Have you been a steward of what's been committed to you and has the tent that belongs to God gone back to him always and perhaps more? Or have you used what he gave you for his purposes? Have you used it for yourself? That's stealing. Not to say anything about the student who's chief, whether he's at West Point or at Asbury. Whether he's at Asbury Theological Seminary or Asbury College, doesn't make any difference. Or the person who lies, how easy it is to be caught. They're the ones, the sins that we consider the grosser. But tell me, who is exempt? There are no exceptions. Every man is sin. And there's no reason to fudge on this because there is no truly new life except where there is repentance and change through the grace of God. You see, I need not only to do what I can do, but if that channel in my life that that key wants to enter is to be straight, it's beyond my correcting. And that's the reason I need to lift my face to God and say, oh God, I've crooked it where it ought to be straight. And I've damaged it where it ought to be whole. And if it's ever to be restored to where you can enter and have full control, do what I can when I've done my best. That won't be enough. I'm going to have to have divine help for it to be right. Now, you know, we do not enjoy sometimes preaching on law and holiness, and yet it isn't isn't anything other than the love of God that brings it to us, because it's love that looks and says this is the only way that you can find reality. And if you try any other way, you will be living in illusion. It's love that tells people the truth, isn't it? I remember speaking here after, not too long after I'd graduated from Asbury, and I had a seminary student come to me. And he said to me, uh, Mr. Kenlaw, He said, something's gone wrong in my spiritual life. He said, uh, I have a pastorate out here helping pay my way through seminary. And he said, for some reason, prayer has lost its joy to me. And the scripture has lost its significance to me. When I read it, it's meaningless. And when I pray, it's just words. I wonder what's wrong. So we started talking. You know, it's never easy to confess, and it normally is never at the problem that we begin. We begin out on the margins, you know, with a more respectable thing. So we talked about the fact that he wasn't as disciplined as he ought to be, that he didn't keep his quiet time as regularly as he ought to be, but we just kept moving and... Finally, I looked him in the face and said, tell me, is there any real unconfessed sin in your life that needs to be, with which you need to deal? His head dropped. And he said, yes. But he said, it's the kind of thing I can't do anything about. I said, oh. He said, yes, when I was a senior in Asbury, I had to pass a philosophy course in order to graduate with my major. And he said, I took the first exam, and he said, I flunked it. And he said, I knew I had to pass the, the, the final one, or I'd never make it. And he said, my whole academic career was hanging on, my admission to seminary. He said, before that final exam, I managed to get a copy of the professor's exam. said, I memorized it, and then only made a ninety-four. But he said, there it is. He said, I can't go back and tell the professor that, because if I do, he'll take my credit for that course away, and that'll take my diploma away from me, and then I'll be an illegitimate student in the seminary, and so then I've got to get out of the seminary and start over to finish the college. He said, I can't afford to do that. You know, I may be, it may have been mean. But I didn't say, can you afford to live the rest of your life with the Bible meaning nothing to you? Can you afford to live the rest of your life with prayer being nothing but rote words? Because that would have been, those would have been valid questions. But I just looked at him and said, can you, a Methodist preacher, afford to go to hell? Got real still. He said, is it that serious? I said, yes. I think it is. He said, but what will happen? I said, that's not your problem. I'd rather be out of the ministry and be right with God than in the ministry and be wrong with Him." But he said, that's not all. And then he started it on some more. And I said, well, I think you know what you have to do, don't you? He said, yes, I guess I do. You know, a few days passed, and he came to me, his face aglow. glow. I said, what happened? He said, I did it. He said, I went to that professor, and he said, I, I told him what I had done. I said, I don't know whether what the professor did was right or not, but this is what he did. It was awfully nice. He said, he looked at me and said, the purpose of philosophy is to bring a man to the place where he loves the truth. And he said, you've obviously caught on. And he said, on that basis, I'm ready to pass you. And he said, you know something? I haven't had a bit of trouble praying since. And the Bible, the word, is precious. And he said, Sunday, I preached with freedom and joy and blessing. Now, there it is. There's no way around it. But, you know, that's the reason that Jesus is so important to you and to me. And that's the reason we come back to the cross. Because there's not a man that ever came into the presence of Jesus, but that was conscious that he was a sinner and that he needed forgiveness. And where are you going to go to get forgiveness but to him? If you sin and then live a thousand years righteously, you're righteous living doesn't take away a sin you ever committed. Man doesn't have to tell but one lie to be a liar. He doesn't have to commit but one sin to be a sinner. The question isn't how many sins I've committed. The question is whether I ever. And if I have, I need him. And that's the reason that at the heart of the Christian faith is a ceremony which is the Lord's Supper. Isn't it interesting that it's a meal where we eat together? When you go into the cafeteria to eat, with whom do you eat? If you're typical, if you're normal, you look around. If you're a fellow and you have a girlfriend, you look for him. If you're a girl and you have a fellow who is a close friend, you look for him. Or if not that, you look for a buddy. It's very seldom you walk in and say, I've never laid eyes on you before and don't have the vaguest notion who you are, but could I eat with you? If you do that, it's deliberate and intentional. It isn't the normal way that we operate. We tend to eat with the people that are the closest to us. It's a family thing. And at the heart of the Christian life is a ritual that is a family ritual. He invites us to sit at His table. And what is it that we share together? His life. Blood that can wash away our sin. And a life that can make, enable even a person like me to live right. And I need both. I need a covering for my sin. But I need a life that is not within me if I'm to live his way. And when he comes and his life becomes mine, then I find a power within me that I, even I, can do in his strength what is right. the heart of the Old Testament worship was the Ark of the Covenant with the tables of the law. And at the heart of the new is shed blood and a broken body so that we can be right with him. Now I want to ask you, are you right with him? And that's where we need to begin. Is there sin that needs to be confessed? Is there restitution that needs to be made? Are there crooked places that need to be straightened out? It's necessary. If we're to move from a religious illusion to Christian reality.